FX medicine is evolving. The same evidence-based research, ideas and thought-provoking conversations that you love in refreshed new formats. To help co-create it with us and for member rewards, sign up at fxmedicine.com.au. For now, enjoy this podcast previously recorded with Andrew Whitfield-Cook. This podcast is intended as healthcare practitioner education only and is not a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis or treatment. This is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Joining us on the line today is Maria Schafflander from True Foods Nutrition. She's a fully qualified nutritionist who's trained in all modes of functional medicine testing, including gastrointestinal testing and analysis and microbiome management, plus thyroid, hormonal and toxicity testing and treatment. Maria has extensive clinical experience addressing complicated cases of IBS and other gut-related disorders, especially because of a passion which began with her own journey with irritable bowel syndrome. And I warmly welcome you, Maria, to FX Medicine. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew, for having me. Now, amongst your your other passions, thyroid and, and hormone analysis, things like that, treatment, um, today we'll be discussing IBS because you do have a personal passion for this uh, condition, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I've had gut problems for most of my life, you know, pretty much since birth. And um, it's been a bit of a journey finding out what works and what doesn't and how to treat it. And that's actually what led me to study nutrition. Now, you say that you were diagnosed in your early teens, is that correct? Correct, yeah, high school, during the high school exam period. (laughs) Okay, so is one of the problems with especially irritable bowel syndrome because that we see this sort of perfect storm that, you know, of the high stress, hormones are raging, there's high school, there's all of these issues, and then bang, you get a gut issue. So the diagnosis is made there. But as you said, you've, you've had issues all your life, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I, look, I think there's definitely a genetic predisposition and we know from research that the microbiome that we inherit from the mother during the birth is, you know, predisposing to how our gut is going to function. So I think it started from not inheriting a fantastic microbiome. It had a lot to be desired from my mum's health at the time. And also, um, you know, things that happen, which we see in clinic all the time, you know, respiratory infections that kids get through because of nutrient deficiencies and, you know, low vitamin D, things like that, Um, all sorts of infections that require antibiotic treatments, you know, um, ear infections, otitis media is another common one, Ah, which is, yeah, usually, you know, food intolerances trigger that and then they end up on rounds and rounds of antibiotics. So I think when I was trying to work it out, I had about 40 rounds of antibiotics by the time I was 10 years old. Wow. Conservatively speaking, yeah. (laughs) So 
that definitely was not a great predisposing factor for gut health. And then um, I actually moved to Australia from Russia when I was 13. And, you know, the foods that were available here were really different and, you know, very exciting. You know, all these box cereals and um, all these, you know, exciting packaged cardboard foods. So, which I embraced <laughs> mm, mm. Uh, very excitedly. So, I was pretty much eating, you know, soy milk and light um, skim milk and cereals in boxes and lots of pasta and very processed carbohydrate foods and sugars that you know, were, you know, completely the wrong thing to be doing for uh, one's gut health. Can I just take yeah. a step back a, a bit? Do you know if there's any research looking at multiples of courses of antibiotics, so not just three and four, but, you know, 10 or whatever, um, with worsening uh, risk of irritable bowel syndrome? I haven't seen any specific papers on that, but um, the research that I've looked at to do with antibiotics is telling us that from one round, it usually takes 12 to 24 months of recovery yeah. for the gut you know, to come back to its original condition. So, I think, you know, if someone is exposed to multiple courses over a period of time, especially without taking anything or doing anything to actively repair and replenish, I think that creates a really negative environment that predisposes. There's, yeah. a, there's a lot of variance in that recovery period. I've, I've read papers saying as short as like three months. Yeah. Um, and as long as like 24 months. But it, I, I guess one of the issues there is, well, you get the answer to what you've measured. Yeah, yeah. And look, I think it's a lot of the time people don't actually do anything to actively recover. That's the other issue. Right. Um, you know, they might get a random uh, probiotic from their health food store and take it for a couple of months and that's it, uh, if that you know, so it's that the lack of active recovery and then just a perpetuating diet of highly processed foods, which is then feeding the negative uh, bugs that have taken residence. So it's, yeah, it becomes a really perpetuating cycle. Sure. But you, so you say that, you know, I'm imagining your symptoms would have worsened and culminated in the diagnosis during your early teens, but you can remember episodes of pain and gut problems in your childhood? Yeah, absolutely. Probably not pain. I don't remember ever being in pain, but definitely just not digesting things right. and, you know, having like weird toileting habits that, you know, children don't really normally pay attention to. <laughs> but, um, you know, just having trouble digesting things and also... Uh, having different reactions from one day to the next to the same meals, which is really characteristic of IBS, you know, where people can be eating the similar sort of stuff from day to day but getting different reactions. Um, so it's that, yeah, really dysregulated system. And I think uh, there's, you know, a lot of evidence from studies that shows us that um, higher cortisol levels in childhood can really predispose to disrupted gut-brain communication. Right. So, you know, things like moving countries or any sort of, you know, traumatic events, emotional events that happen to us in childhood, yeah, would really put someone in a state of predisposition right. to IBS. And yeah. do, you, do you think it's it's one of those conditions that you have a perfect storm happening? Like it's, you know, the the food, then the changes in the food, the packaged food you, t you were talking about, and then you add on a stressor 
So the, the move from country, and then you add on the change in stress that you feel from changing body image, say, for instance, entering your teenage years and the pressures of school, and then bang. It's sort absolutely. of right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think the amount of pressure that uh, kids even these days, a lot more than when I was at school, have in terms of performance and getting academic results um, and, you know, getting this one mark at the end of high school, which is, you know, supposed to determine your entire destiny. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, there's so much pressure and I can see that with my own kids um, who, you know, one of them has just started high school that it's really a lot to cope with um, and, you know, these days there's also social media and all sorts of body image uh, pressures as well. So, you know, looking after our stress management becomes really critical at a very early age. So let's talk about irritable bowel syndrome as a diagnosis. What's the pathology? What's the current thoughts on the pathology of IBS? Well, the IBS seems to just fall into this sort of catch-all bucket of when everything else has been excluded. Mm. So it seems to be through, you know, the medical system, people go through and get their colonoscopy done and sometimes their endoscopy as well. They get their basic, you know, stool tests and essentially unless, you know, you have something wrong on your colonoscopy uh, or they identify parasites, which they prescribe antibiotics for, um, if there's nothing obvious found uh, during that time and things like uh, Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis have been ruled out, it becomes you have irritable bowel syndrome. So syndrome, as we know, not a disease but a collection of symptoms. Um, so then that puts the person into this sort of no man's land of um, trying different things. You know, Often they get prescribed the FODMAP diet where they cut out a lot of different foods that some of them are triggering mm-hmm. of the symptoms and essentially they just get told to watch their stress levels. So that's the most common story that I see. I love in that clinic. one. Watch your stress levels. Don't do anything yeah. about it, just watch them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sort of let's wait and see and monitor, you know, those seem to be the words that are used a lot. Yeah. So it kind of takes the, you know, any sort of proactive action away from the person, yeah. It seems to be rather placating, doesn't it, rather than an active treatment? Absolutely, yeah. It's very rare that I've uh, had someone come in clinic where they've actually been recommended to see a psychologist or do any sort of mindfulness work or even, you know, start yoga, breath work, like any of those really simple things that people can do uh, often is not um, on the list of recommended things. And wow. a lot of the time it's, you know, download your FODMAP um, app and um, off you go. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's okay. So what about, you know, the use of even medications here, like, you know, maybe loperamide to help with the diarrhea or mebevidine, colifac? Why isn't there even, even offering of these medications? Yeah, I think, you know, if, so the constipation type of IBS, they usually will get prescribed laxatives. Yeah, motilium, um, yeah. Which, yeah, which, you know, uh, from long-term use of laxatives, we get a whole bunch of different bowel issues as well. So it's not really a long-term solution. It might help someone in the short term, but it doesn't address the root cause. And I think with diarrhea, just from my experience, there's, always some sort of underlying pathogen that is missed 
you know, that, that keeps triggering the diarrhea or some really major food intolerances, usually to dairy, um, which, you know, sends people straight to the toilet a lot of the time. Gotcha. So, yeah, there, just, there seems to be some really obvious uh, causes and triggers yep. that are often masked by the medication. Okay. And do you find these people are diagnosed using just rough symptomatology or do you find that healthcare professionals are getting on board with things like the Rome criteria and they're, they're really delving into functional GI disorders? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, if they end up going through to a gastroenterologist, there's a lot more of the, you know, the work that's done. Usually celiac disease will be ruled out. Um, you know, they might be taking samples from the colon or the small intestine to look at something else. And yeah, there's definitely, you know, people do get that work up. Um, but I find a lot of the time they're not really progressed through to mm. the gastroenterologist unless there's some really, really serious symptoms. So, you know, unless they're having explosive diarrhea or something that um, a medical professional might get really concerned about. But most people I find fall into that sort of group of um, mild, annoying symptoms that disrupt their day-to-day life and create a lot of anxiety and often depression that are not really taken that seriously. Do you think there's a real risk of IBS being trivialised in that your people, and this is all people, including health professionals, seem to sort of treat it as it's, it's a little bit of an upset tummy and it's an embarrassing condition, whereas I've known of people who have been hospitalised with IBS. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I guess that's why it's such a frustrating diagnosis where you know, the, the severity can be really um, varied and you know, people do end up with bouts of, especially if they've had a major stress or something go on in their life, they will end up with a really severe flare-up mm. um, and end up in hospital. And a lot of them are really frustrated by the lack of a proper diagnosis you know, just being told that, oh, yeah, IBS, there's no cure. You know, a lot of the Facebook forums that I follow, um, you know, that are public Facebook forums on IBS, just to understand what people are saying about their condition, uh, it's very much about this is a lifetime thing that you need to manage. So no one even talks about uh, resolving it. Um, at all, you know, as far as I can see. Yeah. Okay. So the appropriate sort of stepping stone is how do you get A, to the GP, get them to understand there's a real issue and B, how do you then get specialist involvement for a diagnosis? Right, exactly. And I think, um, unfortunately, you have to have something wrong on one of your tests to be able to progress through all those steps. Really? (laughs) So... Yeah, I find that often that's the case. So, you know, unless you have um, polyps in your colon from your colonoscopy or ulceration in your small intestine or, uh, you know, something that's found to be a pathology, yeah. it's really tricky yeah, to, to actually get proper attention. And that's where, you know, nutritionists and naturopaths, I think, can really shine in terms of our more holistic understanding of gut conditions. Yeah, I, I can see also there's a risk of be, being treated for that abnormality rather than the IBS. Like if you've got a yeah. solitary rectal ulcer, if you've got hemorrhoids, if you've got, oh, forgive me, I can't remember the condition where you, you basically get a push-me-pull-you with the, the rectal muscles. Um, right. yeah. You, yeah. A, a incomplete evacuation is what it leads to. That yeah. sort of issue, you know, I can see that 
it really does require some expertise to go, hmm, what's going on here? Yeah, and I think also uh, people end up being selectively treated for certain pathogens, usually with more antibiotics, which then perpetuates their gut problems and perpetuates their IBS. So a lot of the time, it's you know, with parasites, um, if a parasite is found on a stool test, usually someone will be prescribed antibiotics and then it doesn't resolve the problem. So even if the retest comes back with no parasite, the person is then often still experiencing the symptoms and yeah. just wondering, well, what happened? Or, you know, the parasite's dead and I'm still having all these problems. Um, so as we know, it's a lot more about the terrain of the gut and the overall condition of the gut rather than a presence of a specific organism. Right. And also perhaps failure of treatment. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. you, ment- you mentioned, I, I know I'm sort of dancing around a bit here. I will sort of get back onto a train of thought, but you mentioned food sensitivities before. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about testing here. How useful is testing for food sensitivities? So I find, yeah, it's a tricky one. Um, lots of clients come in with um, having had food intolerance testing done, either ordered it themselves online or with a previous practitioner. And, you know, they come with a list of 40 things that they are, uh, quote, unquote, intolerant to. And they then exclude all those foods from their diet. And usually that doesn't really resolve their symptoms either. So I think we have to make a really obvious distinction between food intolerance testing, looking at the immune activation. So, you know, for example, testing your IgG antibodies um, or food allergies, testing your IgE antibodies. So that's really looking at the immune system and what's happened with those foods triggering a reaction. But as we know, a lot of the time, it's the condition of the gut Mm. which is allowing that to happen. Mm. So, you know, with leaky gut um, or intestinal permeability, it's if the gut doesn't have a really um, well integrated protective layer and um, all those cells, you know, tightly standing together in their little tight junctions, those proteins from food are going to be coming in and out, triggering all sorts of immune activation. Yeah. So, you know, it's a lot more about the gut condition. And then I think people also get confused with sensitivities. So, you know, Foods that are high in um, FODMAPs with you know, their fermentable carbohydrates, they might trigger bloating and gas and discomfort. That's not because someone is intolerant to the food. That's because it's triggering a gut response from a bacteria in the intestine. So that's going to create symptoms, but that doesn't mean the person is intolerant to the food. Uh, it's just not getting digested properly. Yes, I, I'll give you a big here, here. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't have issues with reasonable use of FODMAPs, of the FODMAP diet. My, my problem is that the FODMAP is called the low FODMAP diet, not the no FODMAP <laughs> diet. And yes, I have real issues exactly. when people exclude important food groups. Yeah, and I find also frustrating, frustratingly it doesn't exclude the ones that really need to be excluded. Mm. Yes, <laughs> so, you know, yes. For example, you know, with dairy, dairy, I find the frustrating part is, yeah, let's take the lactose out, but it's, you know, it's what not the just proteins? the lactose that's the problem, right? 
It's, yeah, it's usually the protein, which is the casein, which is really inflammatory for a lot of people with gut issues. So, you know, just taking out the lactose is not going to resolve the issue. Um, or, you know, gluten, for example, you know, just taking out the fructan from the wheat doesn't take away the inflammation and the toxicity that comes with gluten. So it's, that's the frustrating part is, you know, the foods that really should go um, are not taken out. And then the foods that can still be eaten in moderation and are really important prebiotic fiber foods like fruit and vegetables with a humble apple, for example, <laughs> um, you know, the poor apple that's just been completely demonized, uh, you know, that, that's taken out and the person is not getting the fibers and the, the prebiotics and the vitamins and the minerals from those foods. So that creates a whole bunch of other issues. Yes. You remind me of saliently of my cash's uh, stewed apple ramekins um yes. you know the yes. the the recipe of which is up on the fx medicine website if anybody wants to go and look there for it but yeah, I, I, i'll always really... remember his um his sentence he said low fodmap anyone yeah um, yeah absolutely and i actually um since that time that i heard michael ash talking at that symposium um just a few months ago i did a phone interview with him for a program that i've been working on an yeah. online program for ibs and we talked at length about the cooked apple and, you know, all the amazing constituents and there's more than one, you know, it's not just pectin, there's a whole bunch of different constituents. yeah. Yeah, yeah, and all those fibres and um, prebiotics and gut healing substances. And I just, I found it so amazing because cooked apples is something that my grandfather used to make for me when I was a kid. It's a very traditional Russian dessert. Yeah. Um, stewed apples with cinnamon and Bingo. it's just one of those amazing foods you know Okay, yeah. so just going back to pharmaceutical medications again, you know, like there's a lot of options there. They do one job very well, sometimes too well, sometimes with ensuing side effects. I remember one of the um, the Cetron groups of drugs, um, the 5-HT, I think it's three, antagonist, um, they, it was taken off the market because in Australia at least, because of side effects. But what about the use of, you mentioned depression, so antidepressants, SSRIs? Yeah, well, as we know, a lot of our serotonin is produced in the gut. And I think experts sort of have a debate about, you know, is it 60%, is it 80%? You know, a large percentage of serotonin is produced in the gut. So if someone is lacking uh, abundant microbiota to be able to produce those neurotransmitters, uh, sometimes, you know, putting the serotonin back in can help us regulate that bidirectional flow um, between the gut and the brain. So, uh, yes, uh, you know, it can help definitely if the person is actually uh, deficient in serotonin. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, a lot of the time when I do some biochemical profiling with mood disorders, I find that uh, just based on people's symptoms, when you really look into it, it's not only serotonin that's a problem. A lot of the time with gut stuff, it's acetylcholine, which is, you know, it's so important for the motility yeah. of the gut. 
So, yeah, look, just prescribing um, a drug to boost one particular neurotransmitter, you know, sometimes it works. You know, there will be a certain group of people that it will help, but I find the majority really doesn't. Yeah, um, you've got various receptors in the gut. Like, uh, is it one, three, four, seven? And they have varying functions with propulsion. So if you just add a serotonin reuptake inhibitor, there you go. It's not really controlling how those receptors do their work. So I, I totally get your prob- your point about acetylcholine. So what, therefore, do you use then to support acetylcholine? Uh, well, look, with acetylcholine, the main issue is that the person will be put into sympathetic dominance. Gotcha. Um, so it goes back to that whole stress connection because acetylcholine is there to really power the parasympathetic nervous system. Right. And what it also does is um, helps us release our hydrochloric acid and enzymes and, you know, help with the whole peristaltic action of the gut, the movement. So if we're deficient in acetylcholine, we're going to have problems right at the top of the digestive system with breaking down the proteins in the stomach. So I guess, you know, one of the nutrients that really feeds into acetylcholine is acetylcarnitine um, as well as our B vitamins and choline. And, you know, most people do not um, get enough choline in their diet, you know, maybe from eggs a little bit, but, you know, most people's diet is really deficient in choline. And most people's mitochondria don't work too well to produce um, acetyl-L-carnitine. So um, it becomes a bit of a tricky thing. But I actually I think that it's bi-directional again. So if someone's stressed, uh, spending a lot of time in sympathetic dominance, if they're stressed, then they're going to be using up their B vitamins and magnesium and all the other things that require us to produce those neurotransmitters. You know, there's so many issues I see in the research and and one of the issues is the messenger is shot, basically. Um, There's an issue with TMAO from choline, metabolism, Mm -hmm. but it's metabolism, anyone, metabolism. It's the bacteria that's the issue. And yet it's choline that's blamed. Yeah. And yeah, look, I also think that it's it's a catch-22 because when someone is stressed, it's going to put their stomach acid down. So, you know, they're going to have a lower level of hydrochloric acid. So then absorbing all those nutrients from the food is going to become a problem. And then when they don't have the nutrients, they can't power up those neurotransmitters. So it becomes a bit of a vicious cycle. Right. I wanted to get to this a little bit later, but I have to bring it in now. And that do you mm-hmm. favour the use of things like vagal nerve stimulation to help with the parasymp- the um, sympathetic nervous stimulation to, to settle it down? Well, I haven't had any experience with devices. I know, you know, a lot of practitioners use devices, particularly um, in chiropractic and osteo fields that actually will stimulate the vagus nerve. Um, in our clinic, we use more uh, breathing right. exercises right. and hypnotherapy. Yeah, hypnotherapy, mindfulness, stress reduction, um, breathing, all of those exercises to uh, give someone the tools that they can just use at home 
you know, right. to start reprogramming their vagal tone. Now, yeah. hyp hypnotherapy was very interesting because it had a very high success rate. Yeah, yeah. All the studies with um, hypnotherapy and irritable bowel have been really successful. So um, I know there's a study that showed hypnotherapy was on par with FODMAP yeah. um, in terms of resolving symptoms. Um, um, my approach is, and that's you know what I've been working on with the program, uh, to put both together. So I don't think it's either nutrition and diet or mind work. I think you have to really do both, and that's where people have the most success. So I don't think you can say, well, I'll just keep eating gluten and dairy and all these problem foods and I'll just do hypnotherapy and I'll be fine. I, yeah, I don't think it would work like that. Um, so I think the combination of both is the most powerful tool. And when you're dealing with the gut, I mean, the, the, there's a whole world opening up to you. It's like we've spoken about this before in podcasts. Do you really start with simple things like how do you chew your food? Do you try and relax before a meal? Do you eat in a stressful environment? Those sort of basic, simple things that grandma told us about and we never did? Absolutely, yeah. And it's really about slowing down and being mindful. So that's where, you know, a lot of the mindfulness um, stuff comes in to really draw people's attention and not only on what they're eating but how they're eating. So exactly what you said, you know, not chewing properly, um, not having your mouth open when you're eating, um, you know, chewing for many, many times being in a calm environment. So, you know, people are eating when they drive and people are eating in front of their computer and they're not going to be digesting their food when they're doing that really. So, yeah, a lot of that stuff is really, really simple things that we've forgotten how to do. Yeah. And what about things like starting high up with things uh, like aperitifs, good old gentian maybe as a herb? Are there any particular um, things that you use that might help even stimulate stomach acid secretion? Yeah, absolutely. So even, you know, apple cider vinegar and ah, lemon juice in water. Yeah, really, really simple stuff that's available cheaply to anyone. Um, you know, you just have to be careful. I find some people um, can't really tolerate apple cider because they've got so much gastric inflammation. It's literally just burning their insides. Yeah. But, you know, unless it's um, really serious like that, most people can handle it. It's a really nice, yeah, digestive stimulant. Um, I find even um, the apples do that as well. The cooked apples can be a really nice digestive stimulant. And, you know, the other one is ginger. Um, which is, yeah, really, I think, underused and undervalued um, where, you know, you can do grated ginger or just boil some ginger pieces in hot water, drink it as a tea, but, you know, it's one nice. of those warming digestive tonics, yeah. Now we're on to the stomach and, you know, like the gut superhighway begins basically. Um, so with what about digestive enzymes? Do you ever employ those and, and you know, what sort of facility do they have? What sort of um, promise do they hold? Yeah, absolutely. I'm a massive fan of um, betaine uh -huh. and, and digestive enzymes, yeah, and usually a combination of both of those things um, because you know, with the stomach, and this is something that I've struggled with, um, you know, in my life as well, it all starts with the stomach. So, you know, if we're looking at the causes of IBS, which we, we haven't really touched yet on SIBO, um, anything which is the causal driver will usually originate in the stomach where people are not digesting their 
food properly and particularly, you know, not breaking down the protein. So instead of getting individual amino acids going nicely through our intestine and getting absorbed, they're ending up with peptides with, you know, multiple bits of protein that's not properly broken down. So I find that, yeah, enzymes, um, hydrochloric acid boosting supplements, all those things, anything that helps the stomach, um, zinc and B6 is another really, really important one. Um, everything that we can do to make the stomach work better is going to really help with IBS. So SIBO, we're onto that. <laughs> um, yes. <laughs> you know, like I remember Stephen Sandberg Lewis opened my eyes and, and Narala Jacoby, but I still have questions with regards to SIBO. I note that it doesn't appear at all on Rome criteria. So where it, where does it sit? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, look, it's a tricky one. Um so, you know, I think amongst the complementary health practitioners, there's probably a bit of a division, I would say, with, you know, the SIBO believers and the SIBO non-believers uh, and someone in between, you know, in the grey area in between. So, look, I see SIBO as a symptom. It's definitely, it, you know, it's a bit of a symptom and a cause. So when the stomach is not working properly, you're going to end up with a bacterial overgrowth in the small intestine. Yeah. So when the gallbladder is not working properly and you're not getting the bile to be the antimicrobial substance, you're going to end up with an overgrowth in the small intestine. Yeah. Right. So, you know, is that the cause or is the low hydrochloric acid actually the cause, you know, that originates everything? Um, and then you've got the movement issue, so the peristalsis that goes off, um, you know, in SIBO. So, yeah, look, it's, it's an interesting one. Uh, definitely I don't think yet recognised by the medical mainstream. Um, but what I find is, you know, if people are having responses to carbohydrates, so if someone is getting gassy and bloated anytime they eat one of those FODMAP foods, pretty high chance they have some sort of bacterial overgrowth in there. And a lot of the time I find that just doing a bit of a trial with an antimicrobial substance, you know, something simple like a bit of oregano oil um, is really effective to see how they will respond and what's going on okay. in there. So, you know, if you trial that for a month with a practitioner and your symptoms significantly reduce, well, there's a pretty high chance there's a bacterial overgrowth in there that needs to be addressed. We know yeah. that we can't get into the upper portions, sorry, in, into the middle portions of the small intestine. We can only get into the upper portions of the small and the highest reaches, if you like, of the colon. So there's a whole area of the digestive tract that is really out of the, out of the realms of assessment. Um, yeah. I'm also very cautious about, you know, doing, if we're doing poo testing, you're looking at what's coming out, not what's in there or what's staying yeah, in there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And look, this is, you know, it comes down to the clinician sort of using the tool that they use and getting really good at it. So, you know, my belief is, you know, choose a tool that is consistent um, for the clients and it's consistent between the first test and your treatment and then the second test. So, I actually do utilize um, stool testing yep. in clinic and I do find it really useful. And a lot of the time, if there's an overgrowth of bacteria in the bowel, 
it's pretty common that it's going to go up into the small intestine as well. And I've had a many, many, a huge number of clients come through with having done a SIBO test and being negative for SIBO. And then, you know, we do the bowel test, they've got all this bacterial overgrowth in there, we treat that, and then their symptoms resolve. Right. So, you know, I find that um, from my clinic experience, looking at the bowel is far more interesting than doing a breath test for SIBO. But that's just been my personal, you know, clinic experience. Gotcha. Okay. I was also reminded by a gastroenterologist about the concept of dysbiosis is, as he said, a concept. How do you Mm. treat a concept? But I guess the, the proof in the pudding for your patients is, A, their symptom resolution that is maintained, um, but B, if you can show a difference in tests over time, so a a baseline and a test um, level. So is this what you find? You can show this? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So uh, using a DNA PCR stool testing, looking at, you know, starting with your baseline and addressing whatever microbial imbalances are there, uh, focusing on rebuilding the gut environment, so lots of pro and prebiotics as appropriate for the person, and then changing their lifestyle, changing their diet, doing all that work. I find usually for about six months, and then doing a retest, and you know, 95% of the time, there's a huge improvement both in the diversity and the count um, of the positive bacteria. Yeah. And as well as elimination of things like parasites or Helicobacter pylori or, you know, anything else that comes in there. You said prebiotics. Now, prebiotics can sometimes cause excessive wind. Indeed, one of the prebiotics, lactulose, is used to help the gut, but it's also used as a laxative. So when you've got an an IBS-D dominant patient, how does that work? Do you just decrease the dose? Do you use it at all? Yeah, I definitely do. I find with IBSD, uh, 95% of the time there's going to be some sort of organism that's triggering the diarrhea, right? right? So uh, usually, you know, it will be a parasite or some sort of bacteria that's become extremely dysbiotic as well as food issues. So it's incredible how many people with IBSD are regularly having cow's milk and not putting the two and two together. So that's a really simple starting point where, you know, we go through the diet with a um, very fine look and uh, get rid of anything that can be driving the diarrhea. So a lot of the time just the dietary change is pretty significant. Um, Then looking at any dysbiotic or pathogenic organism and targeting that first And then I would be looking at adding a prebiotic and probably using the single ones. So, you know, uh, your guar gum, partially hydrolyzed guar gum seems to be a really nice non-reactive one, you know, that's become quite popular. So Mm. starting really, really low with like a pinch, you know, and building it up slowly. Okay. And you were talking about terrain earlier. So, you know, Betaine and, and what about other just micronutrients, for instance, zinc? 
Yeah. Um, look, zinc is one of the things that I absolutely love in life. And I think if I had to be put on an island with uh, the choice of one supplement to take with me, it would be zinc. Oysters. Yes, um, <laughs> yes it would be oysters and zinc in a bottle. Um, I absolutely love zinc. Pretty much every one of my clients walked out with a bottle of zinc in some form or another. So, yes. It's amazing at, well, first of all, helping with our hydrochloric acid production. It's completely fundamental for that. Uh, it's fundamental to hold the tight junction, tight junctions in the gut together. Um, it's fundamental for our mood and serotonin production and, you know, probably 100 other things that I can't think of right now. No, absolutely. Um, <laughs> Immune system, right? Yeah. <laughs> at, at what enzyme system isn't affected by zinc? Um, exactly. So hypnotherapy, take us through a little bit of, of how hypnotherapy is approached with IBS. Yeah, so in our clinic, so my partner, Scott Allerton, who's a clinical hypnotherapist, um, looks at a lot of um, my gut cases and usually when someone comes in with IBS and gut issues, 99% of the time they'll also be experiencing either anxiety or depression or PTSD or some other mood-related issue. Um, usually those things perpetuate what we call a sympathetic state, so a fight-or-flight state where the person is stuck in that, uh, you know, stressy state where everything triggers them and their entire nervous system becomes hypersensitive. So, you know, a lot of the time people will come in with they're sensitive to noise, they're sensitive to light, they're sensitive to music, you know, they become hypersensitive. So just like their gut is hypersensitive to food, so visceral organ hypersensitivity, their nervous system becomes really, really sensitive. So, of course, they're going to be reactive to things. So what hypnotherapy does is uh, it basically takes the logical thinking brain out of the equation for the duration of the treatment. So putting someone into a state of focused trance, um, so a very calm mm. and relaxed state, you know, the person's still totally awake, but they're calm and relaxed and their brain's not thinking. So there's all that critical thinking and evaluation goes out and they tap into their subconscious. And that's really where things come up. So, you know, their stressors, their past trauma, whatever is um, driving their stress usually comes up to the surface. And then it's the therapist's skill to talk them through it in a way that's very safe and um emotionally cleansing, wow. I guess. And, yeah, it's a really powerful tool. And, you know, what most people will say is like, oh, no, I'm too I'm too awake. I can't be hypnotized. Um, um, you know, I, I always have to be in control and all that sort of stuff. They're usually the people with the gut problems. <laughs> yes. So, um, yeah, it, yeah it's everything. Everyone can be hypnotized and it's up to, you know, the skill of the professional and also just um, allowing oneself to relax enough to be able to stop thinking for a little while. <laughs> Which is a challenge unto itself. Yes. yes. So so what about ongoing therapy? Do, does the hypnotherapist teach uh, the IBS patient to take home some skills so that when they're encountering a stressful situation, they can sort of 
um, the regress is not the right word, but retreat into themselves? Absolutely, yeah. So usually, you know, after a few sessions, um, the person is, you know, calmed down enough and is parasympathetic enough, relaxed enough to be able to handle things better anyway. So their entire stress baseline is taken right down. And then, yeah, there's lots of techniques with um, breathing, uh, visualizations, uh, you know, specific tools that can be used day to day to be able to manage our stress much better. Uh, there's always usually recordings that can be listened to as well. So, you know, Scott does a lot of recordings and yeah. you know, we put that into the program. So something that they can then just listen to before they go to sleep to really bring their day stress level down. So it's usually something that requires some input and ongoing management from the person, yeah, to be in control of their own stress response. What about any other resources that we can learn from? Um, what, are, what are some of the best that you've come across? Uh, in terms of stress reduction. Stress reduction, IBS, whatever you feel is great. Yeah, um, look, there's lots and lots of uh, literature out there in terms of the stress uh, and IBS connection. So there's been really good studies um, that I've come across that talk about uh, how the gut-brain axis operates, how you know we deal with stress, how um, all those things impact. So there's lots of research out there. Uh, in terms of resources, I would say um, seeing a practitioner <laughs> is probably you know really important because it's important to personalise your treatment, yeah, right. So uh, testing, I think, is a really, really important part of that. Um, where you know you can really look into the gut and understand what's happened in your own unique microbiome. Um, in terms of online, easy to use resources, um, I'm about to launch the IBS healing program. Ah, great. So okay. that's something, yeah, that's an online program that Scott and I have put together that covers a nutritional component with everything to do with how to get rid of the wrong foods, how to find out what the right foods are for you, how to use foods as medicine and healing, as well as all those stress reduction techniques. So that will be available online very shortly. Okay, so that's more of a patient resource, right? Yes, yeah, absolutely. Okay. All mm -hmm. right, and for practice? Yeah. Uh, for practitioners, um, there's uh, quite a number of books on hypnosis and stress reduction. There's lots and lots of research into uh, you know everything ranging from Hans Failure, who's you know one of the, the pioneers. Failure, yeah. Uh, looking at the stress response, there's also a lot of um, books on um, just trying to think of the author. But everything that looks at, you know, how our emotions affect the gut and how the stress response becomes dominant in the body mm. and how difficult it is to turn it off. Um, one book I can think of that's fantastic is um, Gabor Mate uh, and it's called When the Body Says No... Uh, the mind, the stress and body connection. So uh, he's someone who's identified lots and lots of health conditions where stress has been a major driver, including gut-related conditions. Brilliant. Well, uh, I'll definitely put these up on the FX Medicine website for everybody to learn from. This is fantastic information, Maria. Thank you so much for taking us through this 
You're uh, very and, welcome. And your personal journey today, because like I, I realise that when when somebody suffers from something, it it can be a quite confronting when you you know admit that if you like to the world, but b it can also empower you because you it's really sent you on a, a true journey of, of expertise to help other people. So. I really thank you for discussing your story, but also where it's led you in helping others today. Brilliant. Thanks so much, Andrew. Great talking about this topic. <laughs> this is FX Medicine. I'm Andrew Whitfield-Cook. Thanks for listening. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to us on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts or Spotify. You can also let us know what further topics you'd like us to cover by contacting us through our website, fxmedicine.com.au or by connecting with us on Facebook or Instagram.